0: So, welcome everyone to tonight's session of Philosophy Matters. Uh, I think it's going to be quite an exciting session tonight. I've been really looking forward to it. The title of the session is What Does Neuroscience Tell Us About Ethics? And our speaker today is Usha Sister. She will be addressing how neuroscience informs moral theory, what goes on in our brains when we are presented with moral dilemmas, and what does that tell us about ourselves? So today, Usha will begin with a brief overview of the field of neuroethics and its relationship with philosophy, psychology, and the law. She'll give us a summary snapshot of the human brain, its major structural features, and their functional roles. She'll then highlight specific empirical neuroscientific findings on certain commonly known ethical conundrums, such as the famous trolley problem and its variants. To round up her talk, Usha will discuss two examples of neuroethics in the practical world, criminal behaviour and the courtroom. So let me say a little about Usha's background. Usha is a learning and development professional. She has a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and a master's in English as well as molecular biotechnology. Some of her key areas of interest are neurobiology of well-being and the behavioral and neurobiological underpinnings of deviant behavior. She is a voracious reader and also paints and dabbles with photography and filmmaking. Usha is contemplating on establishing a literary magazine. She is also crafting the details of her newly established consulting venture. So please welcome Usha. Thank you, Les and more.
1: Thank you everyone for joining us tonight what does neuroscience tell us about ethics? Uh-huh. Just, just as an intro, this, this whole topic came about because of the different questions that were coming up in the earlier uh, philosophy matters uh, discussions, And the general interest that I uh, thought was common about what, what, what does empirical science have to say about philosophical issues? And given that I do have a background in this, I thought, okay, let me try putting something together for us. Um, Just some basic foundations here. Now, neuroethics is an interdisciplinary area, and it puts two major concerns. One is about the ethical issues raised by our and constantly changing, improving knowledge with the brain and our own ability to monitor and influence it, and the other one is about the the different ethical issues um, related to our understanding of the biological basis of agency, decision-making, moral psychology, etc., which is largely what we're going to be looking at today. For the purposes of our discussion here, what we're going to be talking about are neural correlates, which basically refers to the different brain activity that corresponds with a particular experience. For example, we talk about neural correlates of consciousness or neural correlates of creativity. So in this instance, we're going to be talking about neural correlates of ethics. Now, it's, it's a basic intro, I'm sure everybody knows this, but we're going to also sort switch between ethics and morality here, because it's, it's a meta reflection on morality from the perspective of neuroscience. Now neuroscience, that this is a common confusion that I've heard from a lot of people. Now neuroscience includes a lot of multidisciplinary areas. And some of the ones, and they all look at different aspects of the brain and its functions. And not everything is translatable into um, something like, there is a gene involved in a particular sort of behavior and therefore that gene causes this particular kind of behavior. That, That kind of translation is really not possible. So anatomy looks at the specific structures of the nervous system whereas pharmacology looks like at how drugs affect the nervous system but at a cellular level by and large. We're not talking about broadly behavioral level there. Behavioral neuroscience looks at the mental processes involved in behavior. Cognitive neuroscience is very similar to behavioral neuroscience but we are looking at but it's, what behavioral is the external face of it. Cognitive is the internal. We're looking at the neural substrates and correlations of that particular behavior. And neurophilosophy is what we are actually doing here. We're engaging with the discussions that are common to and can be referenced by science, but are essentially philosophical in nature. Neurology is about the diagnosis and treatment of diseases. Um, I apologize right at the beginning for everybody who knows basic neuroscience and neuroethics, but I'll very, very quickly give an uh, an introduction to it. Reason being, if you do come across different articles or conversations about neuroethics, or even in general, anything related to neuroscience, this will give you a context. Um, what these articles are talking about, and perhaps even give you the sense of whether they're trying to bullshit you with just the word neuro at the beginning of use any term. Now, we're looking at the nervous system here, the central nervous system. It's basically the brain and the spinal cord. And we're looking at the peripheral nervous system, which is all your neurons and how uh, your movements are controlled whether they're voluntary, involuntary, whether your movements are you know based on your fight or flight responses or whether they are more involuntary in the sense that you need to sleep or do you need to eat, that kind of um, distinction. The brain essentially is divided into two hemispheres. You've got your left and your right, and this in the the bridge between it is the corpus callosum. Um, I just want to mention here that I've heard a lot of stuff about left brain, right brain stuff. It's not for discussion here, but most of it is bullshit. It's FYI. Now, this becomes important when we're looking at studies and other specific contexts. So there are three, four major regions of the brain, the frontal, the temporal, the parietal, and occipital lobe. The occipital lobe is primarily involved in visual processing. That's where your primary visual cortex is present. Temporal lobe is involved in processing of sound and to some extent memory. Parietal lobe is involved largely in integrating and uh, processing sensations. all the other sensory inputs and outputs. Frontal lobe is the most complex Uh, part of the brain. It's the most recently evolved. It's what sets us apart from our other primate cousins. Um, And a lot of the studies that are, uh, whether it's neuroethics, moral psychology, emotional processing, behavior, refer to frontal lobe and other regions where they touch upon temporal and parietal lobes, by and large just a further FYI, so the brains, as you, I'm, I'm sure everybody has seen images of the brain, if not directly seen one. So it's got fissures, it's, it's got the lumps. So the bumps are called um, your gyri, and the, the the fissures are called the cell size. The, the reason it becomes important, again, is essentially that the way these different Regions are involved varies for different kinds of um, sensory inputs, and if you come across these references and studies, you will at least know what they are talking about. I'm going to skip through this. Basically, the the basis of our complete nervous system is based on the neuron. That's what sends um, and receives all from the brain and gathers inputs from every other part. That's what we see. We don't directly see neurons firing when we look at brain scan images, but this is, we, everything we study in neuroscience is directly or indirectly related to how a neuron or a bunch of neurons are functioning. So this is what we are looking at always. Gray matter, white matter, I'm just gonna gloss over this. If you want, we can look at these things in detail later when we get to Q and A's and discussions. Okay, there, neuroethics as such is not a very old area of research. You know, maybe about 20 years, 15, 20 years. It came off as um, an offspring of behavioral economics. So the kind of studies that many of us are familiar with, uh, we've referred to in the past, the, the thinking fast and slow, kind of systems, the system one, system two, thinking that was uh, made immensely popular by Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Malcolm Gladwell has written about it in more lay people terms. Um, So they they all refer to what we are now beginning to call the brain. Now, they're two distinct subsystems that are involved in moral reasoning one is the system one kind of reasoning processes which is the fast intuitive ones the second one requires conscious deliberation and it also has a higher cognitive load so cognitive load here it means that it puts more pressure on the brain we are going to expend a lot of energy on this kind of deliberation some of the most Important regions, and we'll look at what these regions are in a bit. Anyway, uh, involved in these two distinct subsystems are the ventral striatum and what's called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is involved in the automatic response uh, that favors fast, intuitive, emotion-driven, to some extent, impulsive thinking, and it and this kind of response. its turn influences how these regions also work, how they operate. Among other regions, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, that's largely involved in the controlled, deliberate, um, slow, slow thinking, and it's extremely dependent on situational details. So where is the uh, the, the intuitive one is not very sensitive to all the background details, background information, which is why it's able to respond very quickly. The other region is very, very sensitive to the additional information, distractions, and everything else that's there in the environment. Now, moral judgment our ethical considerations are influenced, of course, by both of them. Um, except, of course, the, the area of study neuroethics looks at how informed and how it informs our decision making in turn. So this is what we mean by the, so this is our prefrontal cortex right at the front. Um, I, I'm pointing on my screen. I just realized that this is not, <laughs> uh, I can't do that. So the the prefrontal cortex is this this bit over here, which is like halfway through to the the center part of the brain, the skull, the skull. Now there's, there's the left and the right side and the left, but the more one more towards your eye sockets in the front, that's involved in your, so the farther ahead of your skull you come, the slower and the more deliberate your thinking Um, it's involved in deliberate conscious thinking. The farther back you go, your autonomic, autonomous, and quick responses start increasing. Um, And the farthest back, which is right here, it's, it's a crap way of giving a demo, but it's easier to show. This bit here is the amygdala, the right at the back, which is part of what we call the limbic system, which is reptilian in its evolutionary status. It's it's been with us since the dinosaur times and before. And that is evolutionarily the oldest part of the, any nervous system, any brain really. And it's also the fastest to respond, the first to start developing in the fetal stages. The last part of the brain to develop really is the prefrontal cortex, which doesn't start maturing until we are about 14, 15, which is why we see extremely impulsive and stupid behavior from teenagers. We should really be kind to them and kind to ourselves if we think about our teenagers, because the part that's involved in deliberate decision-making hasn't matured at all. And developmentally, it's different for boys and girls. For girls, it matures faster. By the time they're 17, 18, generally 19 at the most. Typically, it's completely matured. Boys, it takes much longer, 20. There are instances where it goes up to 20, 21 or so. That's commonly the reason why, well, without sounding very sexist, your boys tend to be more stupid in their teenage years and girls tend to be more mature. It's it's down to the nervous system really. Um, this is the philosophical part and we look at what this um, reads like neuroscientifically in a bit. Now, this is called what Joshua Green, one of the moral psychologists, neuroethics researchers calls the central tension principle. The two things here, one, are your characters, uh, characteristically deontological judgments and you have your consequentialist judgments. And they are both processed and presented very, very differently in the human brain. Now, the deontological judgments are preferentially supported by the automatic emotional system one responses Whereas the consequentialist judgments are preferentially supported by uh, the conscious reasoning, slow, deliberate processes, system two processes. Um, So the the, the deontological ones are more difficult to justify in consequentialist terms, such as the, the common judgment of whether to kill one person to save five others. And that's processed in the the emotional automatic response system. Whereas the ones that are very conflicting with our sense of duty, where we start thinking deeper and more deliberately, we start engaging the system to um, parts of the brain, so to speak. And this becomes, a, so. I will be referring to this particular dichotomy pretty much through the studies that I've sort of, highlighted here will also use this particular differentiation, mm-hmm. just, just so you know. Now, so for, let's that here. okay, now I, I thought we'd stick with the trolley variations uh, uh, as an example here, because we've been talking about it and it seems to be a very familiar example that all of us can relate to pretty quickly. Um, so for prison purposes, the two key trolley variation dilemmas are the switch or the bike problem and the footbridge problem. Now in the switch case, one person can hit a switch, turn a runaway trolley away from five people, but hit one person, killing that one person. In the footbridge uh, variant, you have to push off a person, off a footbridge, into the runaway trolley so that the trolley swerves it from its path and so say five people further down the track. To summarize most of the research findings we have so far and we look at all this in detail slightly further down, characteristically consequentialist responses come for the switch case. So when we, wa- when we can hit a switch that turn the trolley away from five people hitting one. People tend, experimental subjects here, tend to give a consequentialist response, which is yes, it's permissible to hit the switch to save more lives. But when it comes to the footbridge case, that variant tends to evoke deontological responses where we say it's not uh, it's not perm- permissible, sorry, No, it's permissible to push to save more lives. This is basically coming from, uh, well, one sample experimental study where uh, Joshua Green and uh, his researchers in the the lab, I think it's from Harvard, they compared personal moral dilemmas, such as the footbridge dilemma, where you have to push a person off a track um, to, impersonal moral dilemmas, like your switch dilemmas or whatever the hypothesis was that the former, that is the personal one, will preferentially engage the brain regions that are involved with emotional processing, one kind of networks, whereas the um, impersonal uh, moral dilemmas would engage brain regions that are associated with controlled cognition, deliberate thinking system two processes. And Joshua Green did find um, results to support this particular hypothesis, as did many other researchers later on. So, the personal dilemmas elicited relatively greater activity in the medial prefrontal cortex, including the ventral medial part. That's the one facing um, the back of the person. Backer, what's wrong with my English? Apology. Uh, the ones more towards the back, and um, subsequent analysis also showed a very strong involvement of the amygdala, that is, the part that's largely involved in your fight-or-flight responses, the quick, impulsive, intuitive uh, limbic system. Whereas the impersonal dilemmas elicited greater activity in the, the dorsal, the front part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and the nearby regions. And, specific, and this particular um, prediction was, uh, this, this was one of the key predictions of the dual process theory, and it's become one of the keystones in in neuroethics and moral psychology research, particularly when looking at moral dilemmas. Now, I wanna, Um, Take a moment here to say when we say greater activity, relatively greater activity, we're basically talking about functional MRI studies here, brain scans, brain imaging studies. Now, I must say that all of the brain is always active. Now, when we look at brain studies, what we are actually looking at and inferring from those images what we're looking at is what we call the bold signal, which is the, the theory there is that the parts of the brain that are more active need more oxygen. They start taking up a lot. There's a lot more blood circulation in that particular or those those particular regions of the brain. So, so we work backwards from there. So we show specific Um, stimuli for given certain suggestions and we look at what regions are more active compared to a baseline. That is what we're looking at. All the different color pictures of brain scans and images that we see, that's processed data. That's how we present it so we can understand better for visual um, impact. So if we look at this, Heaps and heaps of uh, brain imaging studies claiming all sorts of nonsense. So I just want to, you know, please pay attention to what, if if you ever read research papers or even general articles about some study claiming whatever on the basis of imaging, please pay attention to the baseline. What do they compare it with? And what exactly are they talking about in terms of signal? Where are they looking at? How are they contrasting it? Uh, This is because otherwise we can we can we can completely be fooled by very colorful, very good-looking scanned images. Um, Okay, now this a lot of evidence in the last five to 10 years, not just based on uh, neuroimaging studies, but also backed up by behavioral studies. So typically how these uh, experiments are designed is, you have an imaging experiment, but you also look at people responding regularly, whether via reaction times, whether via accuracy, data, so these are called uh, psychophysical studies. A good research paper particularly related to something like moral psychology, that's another indicator should have done psychophysical studies as well to confirm that what we are actually seeing in the brain is actually what we are looking at in behavior as well. They're all mapping right i'm going to read through some of it and uh, we can stop by these slides later if if we you know have questions now patients with frontotemporal dementia that's the the again towards the in the prefrontal cortex but also closer to the temporal regions remember i mentioned that some of the temporal regions are involved in memory processing so now patients with dementia due to Some form of damage in those areas typically have emotional blunting. That means that they cannot emotionally respond in the most normal ways to different scenarios. And they are three times as likely as control subjects, which are basically people with no um, brain damage of any kind, really. They're likely to give consequentialist responses. So people with... Patients with some form of emotional blunting typically give long, deliberate, consequential responses. This is in the case of footbridge cases. Patients with damage to the the medial prefrontal cortex, that's the one that's involved in your autonomic processing, are five times as likely as others to give consequentialist responses that this is again a confirmation that these regions are more strongly, if damaged, your autonomic responses are blunted. Quick, impulsive responses are blunted. Now, research team in Italy produced similar results. Now, follow-up studies showed that consequentialist judgments are associated with um, absent skin response. Basically, that refers to what we call the galvanic skin response, which is where you place electric um, um, sensors on your palm. Your palm is a good indicator of your emotional processing because you sweat here. Uh, Whether you sweat a lot or not, you can pick up those um, electrical conductances. So when you're more stressed, when you're more anxious, when you're emotionally uh, aroused, then you have a higher skin conductance response. So, people who generally give consequentialist judgments have lower skin conductance response. They are much calmer, I would say, sure, but um, colder too in time that some studies have shown later. Um, Now, patients with damage to the similar areas of the ventral medial prefrontal cortex give Consequential responses to dilemmas where familiar duties are pitted against consequential considerations. So if you turn a trolley into one sister to save others, they still give consequentialist responses. These are with patients, they are not with normal human subjects. People exhibit greater physiological activities. um, So if you're very stressed out when performing math tasks, And then you're asked to determine whether you want to give a consequentialist response or um, a more autonomic response. If you are stressed, you tend to give less consequentialist responses because you're less calm. You're more agitated, which means you're not thinking. And therefore, you're giving very, very quick snapshot responses. Low-anxiety psychopaths than healthy people to give consequentialist responses. That's not, not not really surprising because one of the problems with poor psychopaths with low anxiety or high anxiety is, is that they are blunted in um, their uh, socio- social and emotional scale. That's one of the diagnostic criteria as well to mark people as... Um, in some gradation of psychopathic tendencies. They tend to, of course, naturally give consequences because they're not engaging. It's not a direct um, causal relationship we're talking about here. That's because they're not engaging the more emotional regions of the brain. People who are more empathetic tend to give more deontological responses. People high in Psychopathy exhibit, lower amygdala responses, that's dilemmas. Um, you can personalize it in any number of ways. People high in psychopathy will give slower consequentialist responses than emotional ones. You can put their sisters, families in the story and they still give you similar consequentialist answers. Thinking about death reduces consequentialist judgment. Some studies have found this across the board, whether it's people with deficits in emotional awareness because of, oh, sorry, they, they found it across the board in healthy subjects and to some degree, even in different kinds of, um, in, in patients with different kinds of damage. Mortality is, is a huge factor and contemplating mortality. Um, it, it, it changes response dramatically. Amygdala activity, like we've been talking about uh, earlier as well, it it correlates with ratings of negative emotion. So basically higher activity in the amygdala is uh, it's lesser response to um, um, consequentialist judgments. So the greater your amygdala activity, the more the deontological responses that we give. SSRI, uh, which, is, um, an, which is basically an antidepressant, citalopram, in the short term increases your emotional reactivity and reduces consequentialist responses. So there was a study where uh, subjects before being, uh, before starting on the citalopram program uh, did a study and uh, they gave more consequentialist responses, significantly consequentialist in their answers. Whereas once they got started on the drug and it started taking effect, it increased their emotional activity and reactivity, which was studied in any other number of ways. That increased their, um, uh, the deontological responses. Introducing birth. I thought this was really interesting when I found this in one of the research papers, that basically the emotion associated with humor which counteracts negative emotional responses. Humor is a good um, antidepressant, a natural antidepressant. Mirth increases consequentialist responses. I actually thought that mirth and humor would increase autonomic responses, more emotionally um, driven answers, because it's a it's an emotional effect. But no, it turns out no. Humorous people. Um, and funny situations make you think more rationally, apparently. Visual thinking is more emotionally evocative than verbal thinking. Not surprising again, because the visual stimuli is tra- it, it's processed much faster. Uh, whereas when it's verbal thinking, you have to process language and its meanings and its associations, so it takes more time as well. The temporal processing of different stimuli is different in the brain. So anything that typically takes longer time starts engaging the more deliberate system. The faster, which is why we start responding very, very quickly to polarizing, which is why we have very, very strong emotional responses to um, evocative images, whether they are positive or negative. But a humorous, we still need to take a little time to process it. A serious passage, we still need more time to understand what they're talking about if we're reading something. Interfering with visual thinking makes us more consequentialist, makes the judgments more consequential. So if we're looking at, um, I don't know, stimuli where somebody's pushing somebody off the track, and we were giving more um, deontological quicker response times, wrong, yes, right, wrong, right, wrong kind of responses. But if you interfere with those images, if you start putting distractors on the screen, if you stop people from responding quickly, then we start giving more consequentialist judgments. We are less informed by what we're seeing. Um, For the evidence-controlled cognition, now we've we've seen that, I think the first one was in, associated with increased dorsal prefrontal cortex. So um, something that we've looked at earlier as well, that this part further to the front increased activity in those areas are associated with consequentialist judgments. Performing a secondary task like distractions, which increases the cognitive load, which means you're putting more effort in trying to process all the different stimuli that you're asked to pay attention to, it reduces consequentialist responses. It slows us down. It has no effect on deontological responses. You can multitask and still give emotional responses. We do, judgments are not impaired there, but we cannot multitask without simultaneously breaking our uh, deliberate thinking processes, which I've seen in, in, in this case we're looking of course at consequentialist or deontological judgments. and this is actually one of the arguments against multitasking. If you're focusing on a job, a task at hand, please do so because any distracting task can take your attention away and slow you down. Now, but removing time pressure and encouraging deliberation. So if I were to present a question to you, all of us here saying, okay, uh, here is the trolley situation. Give me the answer now, tends to be a deontological answer. More people tend to give those judgments. But if I remove the time pressure and ask you to think it over for the next five minutes, think it over for the next 10 minutes, and then give me a response. The same people, they've, they've, they've been brought back into the lab as well. After a certain time period, they give more deliberate, more consequentialist responses. So if you're under stress, if you're under pressure, then deontological. If you're calmer and if you're in a slower environment, then consequentialist. Um, I I thought I mentioned this earlier as well. So successfully solving tricky math problems, which basically, these are not simple math problems, but really complex ones where you're questioning yourself, for example, like gambler's dilemma or things like that. That makes people, uh, we tend to give more consequentialist responses. So for example, the study would would go something like, We are asked to first do a tricky math problem and then we are asked a question and asked to respond to it in whatever way we think is appropriate. If you have done the math problem first, it has already primed you for thinking slowly and deliberately because you can't solve it otherwise, you're primed to be slow here. So you start giving more consequentialist answers, but And there's a difference here, whether it's the footbridge or um, uh, whether it's the the, the switch problem as well. If it's a, a footbridge case, then you tend to be more consequentialist, independent of whether they solve the math problem first or not. So if you solve the problem first and then you do a moral dilemma, your answers tend to be consequentialist. But people who are generally good with solving tricky problems, whether they do math first or math later, it doesn't matter when they're doing it. If you're primed to uh, do these problems really well, where which means that you're good with consequentialist thinking in any case, the footbridge case usually gets more consequentialist response compared to the switch case. And individuals who generally this this is the uh, point here anyway that who favor effortful thinking over intuitive thinking tend to give more consequentialist responses regardless of what moral dilemmas presented. Of course, these, these findings all relate to variations of trolley and similar moral dilemmas where I'm not looking at the others, but other studies have also found similar responses for moral dilemmas. The papers are all for uh, the trolley problems, generally. Now, beyond the trolleys, now negative emotional responses predict non-consequentialist disapproval. That is, um, so you you not if you say you you disagree with something, then if you're unhappy, your negative emotional response typically non-consequentialist, even harmless uh, moral transgressions. If you tend to be unhappy about certain situations in general, then you are going to disapprove of even more like breaking a promise or skipping an appointment and things like that. Several experiments show that consequentialist considerations play a minimal role and people's judgments about, this is, this is where I'm talking a bit about what this, this shows in the real world, in, in particularly in the courtrooms and in the legal uh, profession now, that when we talk about people's judgments about punishment is largely driven by system one thinking. It's largely emotional, automatic, intuitive, fast thinking. And not consequentialist. But when asked to explain why they chose a particular response, and if you examine their explanation, their answers, or whatever, the, the rationale is usually consequentialist. When you want to just so your response is emotional, but your explanation tends to be consequentialist in nature. Because when you're trying to explain yourself, whether verbally or whether writing down, you're slowing down. So when, when they examined what the responses were after they, by the time these people got through their essays or their descriptions, even the ones who gave uh, whatever their emotional-based responses but punishment at the beginning had changed their answers by the time they had deliberated after for five, 10 minutes and done their explanations. Now. Punishment judgments, it's distinctively non-consequentialist. Non-con- so it's it's driven, com- yeah, I guess that's what I just said. The people who are more punitive, people who tend to be more retributive in nature. Yes, they have to be punished. Yes, our rights must be wronged immediately. So those who start giving responses like that rely on less on controlled cognition, and start giving impulsive, very, very quick responses. And this is true about helping as well. The judgments and decisions about helping also follow non consequentialist patterns and driven by automatic processes. Again, so whether you want to support a charity or not, why do uh, charitable organizations, when we look at fundraisers, please sign up now? I've been stopped at train stations millions of times where the fundraiser, please, we want you to give us the credit card details and we can do it right now. Why? They are drawing upon one of the fundamentals of how we decide. Because if we think, if we start deliberating, then we start following a concept. Oh, can I really afford it? Oh, will it matter? Oh, can I? Don't give people time to think when you want to ask them to help you do it immediately this is what draws into your advertising this is what goes into your neuromarketing, marketing they're all drawing on this particular tendency public health so here public health professionals make more consequentialist judgments whereas doctors um, compared to doctors and ordinary people when it comes to medical dilemma so when even when we look at the Current COVID situation and the different discourses around how to respond to a pandemic. Uh, An Anthony Fauci would give a certain kind of response, whereas um, I Trump never responded. But um, anyone else, any other public health professional, um, would give a certain um, you know, we need to help people. We have to help them get better really quick. Let's open a. Let's do this. That's the kind of language that public health professionals. Uh, uh, sorry, no, I've just reversed it. So, doc, yeah, start doing it, Doctors Start making more. Um, Fauci is a public health professional, even though he is a doctor, right? He's not treating patients. He's not in the hospital at large, so he can take a long distance you look at the big picture? He is not in the crisis, he is not in the middle of an ER trying to respond to a situation. So when you're in that stressful situation, autonomic responses take precedence over consequentialist responses. Pretty much reached the conclusion here. There's a lot more that I could talk about, but I won't. Now, all these experiments, what, what we need Euroethics at all? What can't we just do with philosophical and other forms of discourse about ethical conundrums, moral dilemmas? Now, experiments help us identify all the factors to which our moral judgments are sensitive. Now, that along with independent assumptions, along with the discussions like what we are having today concerning uh, the kind of things that we have to think about, how should we think, how to judge, that can lead us to new and more substantive, well-informed decision-making where we're drawing on our knowledge of how we actually function, how does the brain work, which is how do we work. And help us work, uh, basically work out this trade-off between difficult and easy situations, difficult dilemmas, um, and and knowing how how these different processes are engaged can help us basically work out how we want to frame these ethical questions, how we want to frame legal questions, how we want to work culpability, for example. I haven't even touched, I, I know I said I was going to present some specific uh, deviant-related examples or law-related, maybe in the discussion we could bring that up. Uh, But these kinds of experiments have started informing legal theory. They've started informing, for example, and just very quickly mention here, it's when um, jurisprudence, they they want to revise the, the moral penal code basically related to how do you assign culpability to a particular crime, but especially homicide, knowing how we actually start, resp- how we respond and how, in how we perceive culpability. In the, for example, in the case of jurors, well, they, they've started revising the moral code, the, the moral penal code in, in the US at least, it's called the MPC based on the experimental findings that are coming from labs doing this kind of research. So that's the kind, I I don't know that it has such a big impact here in Australia yet, but in the US definitely. It's a very important part of the legal discourse and courtroom drama now. And so I think the conclusion here is that when we're dealing with unfamiliar moral problems, new ones, unanticipated situations, we ought to rely. This is the normative part that, the closest to normative that I can come up with based on empirical research. We ought to rely less on automatic uh, settings, less on emotional responses, and go more into the manual mode. Think of it like a camera. You know, you're in the auto, um, the auto mode versus the manual mode. Anything unfamiliar, do not trust your immediate responses. Do not trust your instinctual or impulsive responses. Slow down, get back, be more deliberate, and only then start dealing with um, judgments. Anything familiar, well, it's all right, I guess. It's not all right, but it's easier to forgive when it's a familiar situation. Thank you.
0: I think on behalf of everyone tonight, really want to thank you, Isha, for the work you put into this and what a brilliant talk you've done tonight. To access other videos and podcasts in this series, go to the Philosophy Resources section of the Rational Realm website at www.rationalrealm.com.